Man, I love, always love to sing Shout to the Lord. And I'm just thinking about, as Tyler prayed, I'm thinking about all the different countries that are in this room, you know, praising God. I just, I love that. I just think it's an awesome privilege to, to meet with so many people from around the world to praise our awesome God. Um, according to uh, Forbes magazine, it's a U.S. financial news magazine, Carlos Halu. He's Mexican. He is the richest man in the world. He's worth $53.5 billion. Um, according to Forbes magazine, the second richest man in the world is Bill Gates. You know him. He's the Microsoft guy. Um, he's worth $53 billion. Uh, Forbes says that the third richest man in the world is Warren Buffett. He's simply an investor in the U.S., he is worth $47 billion. It was really fascinating for me to do this little research project on the richest men in the world. Uh, I found out that I'm related to number 10. So I'm going to make it a point to try to contact him very soon. But his name is Carl Albrecht. He's a German. That was my German name before my family uh, immigrated to the U.S. in the 18th century. But I'm going to look him up. Hey. He's, he's, uh, he's head of Aldi. You know Aldi? The grocery store. So he owns Aldi. And another interesting thing I found out, it's just trivia for me. This is just free stuff I give you. It doesn't cost you anything. But I also found out that four of the six richest people in America are, is from a small town in my home state of Arkansas. The, the small town of Bentonville, 30,000 population. Four of the six richest people in America live there. Do you know what their last name would be? Walton. It's, it's Sam Walton's children. Uh, they're worth, combined all four of them, worth about $80 billion. I googled uh, Get Rich the other day, and I got 50 million hits. Get Rich. Uh, I didn't have time to look at all the sites, but the ones I, the ones I did look at, obviously... I know some of you think I don't do anything, but I uh, actually do some things. Um, yeah, I, the ones I did look at, uh, guess what it's about? Well, you know what it's about. It's about making money. It's about lots of cash. It seems the world has one definition of what riches are, and it always involves money. It always involves cash. It always involves property. It always involves portfolios. Let me ask you, how do you define riches? How do you define it? Do you think Forbes is right? Do you think Google is right? Is being rich about money? Is it about wealth? Is it about prosperity? Is it about property and cash? How do you define true riches? Well, what does God say? What does God have to say about this? What does God say uh, about people who spend their whole lives in the pursuit of temporal wealth. Well, you remember the guy in Luke chapter 12, right? He was hoarding up and building barns and building more barns because he had such a, a bumper crop. You remember what God said to that guy, right? Anybody remember? God called him a fool. This is how God looks at hoarding up. God says, well, that's foolish. For tonight your soul is required of you. And God says, so is every man. So is every man who is not rich toward God. You remember what 
you remember what Jesus told the rich young ruler over in Matthew 19? He says, man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man who's rich in a worldly sense to enter the kingdom of heaven. James chapter 5, the Holy Spirit tells us about those who misuse earthly riches. The Holy Spirit says, you have lived luxuriously upon the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. And I know many of you are familiar with 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 where the Holy Spirit teaches us about those who desire to get rich. Listen to this. It makes you wonder. You know, these prosperity preachers, it really makes you wonder, do they ever read the Bible all the way through? Because listen to what God has to say about desiring to be wealthy. Listen to what God says. But those who want to get rich fall into, anybody know? Temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. How many of you want to be rich? God says it's a foolish endeavor to be rich in a worldly sense. For the love of money is, at all, is, is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, listen to this, have wandered away from the faith. Wow. And pierced themselves with many a pang. How many of you want to be rich? God says it's a foolish thing to desire earthly wealth. It's a foolish thing. Then they, This is how Tim, uh, Paul finishes that passage to Timothy. He says, but flee these things, you man of God. Flee these things. Back to that guy, Luke chapter 12. God says, God says you're a fool. And every man who hoards up treasure, he's a fool. Every man who hoards up worldly treasure. This is the word of God. You remember then Jesus went on to say, don't waste your life worrying about earthly treasure. Don't waste your life pursuing it. Guess who already knows everything you need? Someone tell me. Who knows what you need? God knows. So why are you worried about it? It's a faith issue, friend. It's always a faith issue. Your anxiety about money and about possessions, it's a faith issue. It's not anything less than that. And then we get down to God's definition of rich, which is radically different from Forbes and Google. Jesus says, here are true riches. Seek what? The kingdom of God. There's true riches. There's a man who's rich. He's seeking after God. First and foremost. Jesus says true riches and real wealth, it, it, it's not to be had in the accumulation of things and the hoarding of things. He says true riches and real wealth are actually gained by how? What does Jesus say there at the end of that great text? By giving it away. That's true riches. You remember what Jesus said? It's pretty radical. It's pretty radical. But I mean, hey, if we're really going to preach from the Bible, you know what I'm saying? It's pretty radical. Uh, listen to what Jesus says, Luke, tw Luke 12, 33 to 34, sell your possessions and give. That's what God says. Make for yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you see why God doesn't want you running after worldly treasure? Where's your heart, friend? Where's your heart? Unfailing treasure. Don't you want unfailing treasure? It's a can't-miss investment proposition hey if i if i came to you one day and i said hey i can give i can promise you a ten thousand dollar pardon me a ten thousand percent return on your investment every one of you would be writing me a check that's what god says a hundredfold return 
on your investment in the kingdom of God. This is what the Lord says. Tonight, we hear again from the Apostle Paul. He understood about true riches, and he mentions it in the text. You may have missed it if you read over it superficially. By the world's standards, Paul had nothing. Paul had to make ends meet by uh, mending tents in his spare time. But Paul was always talking about how rich he was. There it comes again, beloved. How do you define riches? Would your definition be more in line with Forbes and Google? Or would it be in line with the Word of God? Paul understood about seeking the kingdom of God. That's, how, that's the kind of rich Paul was interested in. And he understood about unfailing treasures in heaven. That's the kind of rich Paul was interested in. Just a couple of examples of how Paul saw himself and how he saw every uh, true born-again believer. Paul talks about the riches of God's kindness in the believer's life. Romans chapter 2. Paul talks about the riches of God's glory in the believer's life. Romans chapter 9. Paul talks about the riches of God's grace in the believer's life. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul talks about the surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness in the believer's life. Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ in the believer's life now and forever. And if you didn't miss it, hope you have your Bibles open. In verse 27 of our text tonight, Paul mentions the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Some of you remember that great text, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul described himself. Do you remember what he says? He says, having nothing yet, possessing everything. That's that's a son of God. That's an adopted son of God. Truly understanding who he is in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if I possess anything you can see. I possess all things in Christ. Amen? This is how Paul thought about himself. Paul, Paul made Carlos Halu and Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett look like paupers, friends. Paul was an adopted son of God and he knew it. He knew he was infinitely wealthy. This is why he lived the way he lived. This is why he was so effective in the ministry. By the world's standards, he didn't have anything. But in, by God's standards, he was incalculably uh, wealthy. He was rich toward God. And I just want to ask you, friend, are you, are you rich toward God? Are you desiring that? Are you pursuing that? Are you building your life around the reality of being rich toward God? Or have you been deceived? And are you chasing after this junk in the world that's going to all burn up anyway? Where's your heart, Christian friend? Where's your heart? What's your treasure? What's your treasure? We are infinitely rich. Christ in us. The hope of glory. By way of review, just to bring us up to speed, we've been looking at this letter 
Uh, Paul wrote to the Colossians. Uh, why did he write it? You may remember the Holy Spirit has prompted Paul to write this letter because the gospel is under attack. The pure gospel is under attack. That being uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's under attack. And Paul is writing this letter to defend the true gospel. We've talked a lot about, uh, a lot about this. There were false teachers saying you had to have Christ plus something else to be saved. Christ plus something else to be saved. Uh, that you needed to have Christ plus some kind of works or some kind of legalism or some kind of mysticism. In short, you need Christ and you've got to tack your religion onto it. This is a false gospel. We've been saying this. Anytime someone adds anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it's always false. It's always wrong. And yes, I'm going to say it again. It's always demonic. It's always demonic. Anytime somebody adds anything to the finished work of Jesus, it's wrong, it's false, and it's demonic. It doesn't matter if you call it Catholic or Protestant or something else. If it teaches that you need Christ plus religion to be saved, it is a false gospel. And God says, let that man be accursed who preaches a false gospel. And again, I can hear Paul between the lines here. This is just something that, that the, the Spirit has really brought alive to me as I've studied this book. I can hear Paul shouting between the lines, Don't you dare add anything to Christ. Don't you dare add your man-made religion to Christ. Don't you dare do it. And as I've shared with you, I believe that may be the highest form of blasphemy to add anything to the finished work of Jesus. You heard the text read. I won't reread it. We're picking up here in, in verse 25. Let me pick up there. Of this church, I, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me uh, for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Now, why is Paul a minister of the Word of God? We talked about this over in chapter 1, verse 1. Why is Paul a minister? Why is Paul an, an apostle? What does it say over there in chapter 1, verse 1? Well, God invaded his life. God called him. God made him an apostle, right? So God invades Paul's life on the road to Damascus, and his life is turned upside down. It will never be the same. Not only will it never be the same, it will be radically different going forward. It's what real Christian conversion looks like in a life. Paul's life was radically changed on that road to Damascus. God called Paul to follow him, obey him, and to glorify him. God called Paul's, uh, gave Paul gifts to enable him to do what he called Paul to do. You know, I was, I was thinking about this. I was writing these lines. I realized that's you and that's me. You and I are just like Paul in this regard. Because if you're a Christian tonight, God has invaded your life. And He's turned your world upside down. He's turned your world upside down. And you're never going to be the same. In fact, your life is radically different from what you thought it was going to be. God's called you to follow Him and obey Him and glorify Him. And God has given you gifts to magnify Him and uh, serve Him and obey Him in the church. You're just like Paul. You're a minister according to the stewardship of God. Amen? That's who we are as Christians. If you're a Christian tonight, you're supposed to be a minister in the body of Christ. That's your call. That's what real Christians do. They don't just, as we were talking in the car with Sarah coming, we don't just date the church, we commit to the church. 
You know, we don't just hang out with the church for the good times we can have. We commit to the church. We pour our lives into the church. We use our gifts. This is what Paul's talking about. This is what Paul is talking about. You know that great text, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, God uses that beautiful metaphor, the body. And he says, he says that Christians are part of the body. And guess what? You have a specific function to perform in that body. You've been perfectly designed, perfectly gifted to perform that function in whatever body that you're in. And you're supposed to be doing that function in the body. You may remember uh, about a year and a quarter ago, we, we did a sermon series on loving and serving the body. We talked about our, our gifts and how we're to use them and how we're supposed to fit into the body of Christ. You remember that great analogy that we, we used about the, the disloyal cell in the human body. What is a, a disloyal, mutant, uh, pardon me, mutinous, um, yeah, what's that called in the human body? A disloyal cell, disobedient cell. That the cell refuses to do what the brain says, refuses to do what the head says. Cancer. It's called cancer. It's called cancer, friends, in the human body. It's called cancer in the human body. And so disobedient cells, you know, cancer is the, is the beginning of malfunction and disorder and disease. And so disobedient and disloyal cells are always harmful to the human body. They are always harmful in the body of Christ. And so one thing I'm going to exhort you to do tonight is uh, to be obedient to the Father, to find your gift and use it. Use it in the church. Those members of uh, Christ's body who are disobedient, it's, it's, it brings on disorder in the body. 1 Corinthians chapter. Uh, 12 verse 18 you remember what the holy spirit says about the body of christ god has placed the members each one of them in the body just as what he desires you're here because he desires for you to be here this is not a serendipitous event this is not a coincidence that you're in this church you're supposed to be in this church and you're supposed to be serving this church you're supposed to be using your gift in this church that's what every christian is called to do this is what paul is talking about in the text did you see what he says? He says, I'm a steward. He says, I'm a steward of this gift that God has given me. And why, why does he have this stewardship? What does it say there in verse 25? For whose benefit? For the benefit of the body. Beloved, are you using your gift for the benefit of the body? That's your call. You're just like Paul here. I'm just like Paul here. Are you using your gift in the body? You're supposed to be. That's what God expects. God expects His children to use their gifts in the body. Being a Christian has never just simply been church attendance. It has never been that. It has never been that. It's infinitely more than that. We lay down our lives for the brethren. We love them and we serve them with our lives. As 1 John says, Beloved, you're, you're no different than Paul in this regard. Let me ask you, are you loving and serving this body? Are you using your gift in this body? Sometimes people say, well, Jim, I don't know what my gift is. And I always say the same thing. <laughs> if you'll go to work in the church, you will find it. If you'll go to work in the church, you just roll up your sleeves and start doing something, you're going to run into your gift. You're going to run into it. I've, I've told you this story before. 
I found out I was a preacher. Oh, guess what? Sitting on the back pew? No, I found out I was a preacher from preaching the first time. Yeah, I was scared to death and I had to fill in for a guy. Yeah, it was intimidating. Yeah, it was scary. Yeah, I was nervous. But you know, that's where you're supposed to be if you're going to really be used of God. You're supposed to know you don't have the ability to do it. You're supposed to know you have to cry out, cry out to God for His enabling. I found out I was a preacher the first night I preached. And I was preaching the Word and God was just talking to me in the back of my brain. He's saying, that's why you're on the planet. That's what I mean for you to do. So if you don't know what your gift is, go to work. Go to work. God will show you what your gift is. Notice that Paul calls this gifting a stewardship. What's he saying? You know the word stewardship. Let me just define the word steward for you. It simply means a person who manages another's property, uh, finances, or other affairs. God gives us physical and spiritual life. He's given us gifts and talents and money and wealth and mental and physical capacities, etc., etc. Everything we have, we hold as a stewardship. It's all His. You know this, right? You know you're breathing His air. You know you're eating His food. You know you're walking on His earth, right? You know that's the warmth you feel from His Son. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. God means for us to use our gifts and our endowments to advance the kingdom of God. Friends, in one sense, every breath you draw is a stewardship. It's a stewardship before God. It's a stewardship before God. The Apostle Paul is dead earnest about his stewardship before the Lord. It's what his life was about, being a faithful steward of all that God had put into his life. As we've said it so many times, Paul is one of those guys, he's just pointing at the Bema seat. He's pointing at that day. He's building his life around the day he's going to stand in front of Christ. He's not building his life around uh, today or tomorrow or even 40 years out. He's building his life around the day he stands in front of Jesus. He's pointing to the Bema seat. Are you? Are you? Are you pointing at the Bema seat? That's the job description of every Christian. You point at the Bema, the Bema seat. And all the gifts and resources and endowments God has given to you, you are to be investing in the kingdom of God for the glory of Jesus and the the conversion of the lost. That's the only reason you've been left on the planet, Christian friend. That's really the only reason. It would be far better to go be with God. You've been left for one reason. To magnify Him in your stewardship. That's what Paul says. He says, man, I have a stewardship before God. I preach the Word. That's Paul's gift. He says, I preach the Word. He's magnifying God with His gift. Verse 26 and 27. That is uh, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to His saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you. What is this mystery Paul is talking about? First, parenthetically, let me just insert this. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. God is mysterious. You know, I run into Christians all the time and they want an explanation about everything. They want you to explain everything in the Bible. They want you to explain all the things that aren't explained in the Bible. Listen, friends, 
the best seminary professor I had. He was brilliant. He was an egghead. He was a brainiac. He probably could have made uh, a gazillion dollars in the computer industry somewhere. I mean, the guy was a brainiac. But he wasn't interested in worldly wealth. He became a seminary professor and he would stand in the front and we would ask him all these impossible questions. And he would stand there and he would get this big grin on his face and he'd say, I have no idea. Listen, beloved, that's worship-provoking. A comprehended God is no God at all. Jehovah is infinitely mysterious, and I love Him for that. It's one of His more attractive and alluring qualities, I think. All of His qualities are attractive and alluring. But I particularly love that He is mysterious. I like the way Moses said it, the secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29. 29. But, okay, close parentheses on that. But Paul is not talking about some enigmatic, inscrutable, unknowable thing. He's, talking, he's simply talking about something that has uh, heretofore not been revealed. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but now it's God's good pleasure to reveal it, to reveal it to His saints. You know, it's just one of the fundamental rules of biblical interpretation. The progressive revelation of God in the Bible. There are many things that are hidden in the Old Testament that are not revealed until the New Testament. One is the the incarnation of Christ. That was not fully seen in the Old Testament. Israel's uh, unbelief was not fully seen. Uh, End times lawlessness was not fully seen and understood. The church, the the, the co-mingling of Gentiles and Jews was not seen in the Old Testament. So there were many things that God has revealed to us in the New Testament. I just want to repeat this point. You see that Paul mentions uh, that God is going to reveal these things to His saints. We talked about this once, but I'm just going to bring it up again. Who is a saint? What did we talk about? Our very first sermon in Colossians over there, chapter 1, verse 2. Saints are not super-duper Christians. It's not some super-duper elite Christian club. That's just not biblical. If you're, if you're born-again Christian tonight, you are a saint. The Bible calls you a saint. I just want to make sure you understand that. So what is this mystery? Look at verse 27. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Beloved, this is where Forbes and Google are, clear, are clueless. We are infinitely wealthy. Christ is in us. God is in us. Shame on us if the things in the world that glitter draw our attention. Shame on us if we pursue those things. God is in us. This is our, these are our riches. These are our riches. God is our treasure. Carlos Halu is worth $53 billion. Man, that's a joke compared to the child of God. That's nothing to c- compare to every one of you in here tonight who's a born-again believer. He is a pauper compared to you if you're a Christian tonight. He is a pauper. I love what, you know what God told Abraham over in Genesis 15. God says, I'm your reward. That's the King James Version. I love the King James Version on that. God says, I am your reward. Friend, that's what every true believer knows. You think I'm going to run after mammon? After money? After things? God is in me. 
God is my Father. God has saved me. God indwells me. I'm going to be with my Father forever. You think, you think I'm interested in the things of the world? This is the way Paul was. You think I'm interested? He could care less how he was bit, being written up in the Jerusalem journal. He could care less. He could care less. Man, he was, he was being a steward of all that God had given him. And I can hear Paul again between the lines saying, you've got to be kidding me. Christ is in us. And you're going to add religion to that? You've got to be kidding me. You're going to add religion to the fact that Christ is in us and He's our hope of glory. Just to expand on that, you remember what Jesus told His disciples in John 14, 17. He says, The Spirit of truth abides with you and will be in you. Three times in the New Testament, the believer is called the temple of God. You know this, right? You know you're the temple of God. What does that imply? Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Let me ask you, Christian friend, are you living like that? Are you living that reality that God is in you? I mean, this is just simply stunning. God indwells His people. It's a stunning biblical truth. I'll never forget when I was doing, preparing a sermon on Romans 8. You know that great chapter where God calls us co-heirs. And... Uh, uh, I'll never forget, I, I was doing some research and I, I saw something that an old preacher said, Donald Barnhouse, he's dead now, but listen to what he says. He says, we are being informed in that Romans 8 passage, 15 to 17, that everything God the Father has given to the Lord Jesus Christ has by extension been given to us also. You think I care anything about hoarding up U.S. dollars or European euros? Christ is in me. Friends, you are... If you're a Christian tonight, you are infinitely wealthy. And let me ask you, are you living like a pauper? Are you living like a son and a daughter of God? God expects us to live like a son and a daughter of God. $53 billion, that's chump change. Some of you may not know what that means. That's American slang. That's nothing. That doesn't interest me in the least. Christ is in me. I'm eternally wealthy. I'm infinitely wealthy. My wealth is incalculable. Jesus says, uh, the Father has given you the kingdom gladly. It's yours. Beloved, it's yours. The kingdom of God is yours. Stop chasing the junk in the world. It's junk. It's junk. Let's finish up here. Verses 28 and 29. And we proclaim Him admonishing. We proclaim Jesus admonishing every man and teaching uh, every man with all wisdom and that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works in me. Paul says, I've got the best job in the world. I proclaim Jesus. You know what? I read that, I read that Scripture and I thought, hey, that's your job too. That's my job too. Not just as a preacher. Paul's just not talking about preaching here. Yes, that was his particular gift. But that's not simply what he's talking. He's talking about the job description of every Christian to proclaim the truth. This is what Paul is talking about. He says, man, I get to tell people about Christ. I get to tell people about Christ. What does it mean to admonish someone? It simply means to warn them or to caution them. Beloved, 
Are you warning and cautioning your unbelieving friends about the dire and eternal consequence of sin without Jesus Christ in your life? Are you warning your friends? What is the other thing Paul says I do? I teach my friends. I warn them and I teach them. This is what Paul does. This is really the call of every true believer. You know, it's, in, the, in the States, I don't know if they still do this. I hope they don't. But, you know, uh, I went through an evangelism program when I was first converted. and We were taught to say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Friends, the Bible doesn't talk like that. Jesus doesn't talk like that. The apostles don't talk like that. That's just not biblical. Jesus warned people about the wrath to come. The apostles warned people about the wrath to come. If you really love somebody, you're going to say, hey, you're drinking from a toxic well, you need to stop. If you really love them, that's what you're going to tell them, right? You're not going to stand by and watch it for years and years and years and years. You're going to warn them about the consequences. Paul not only warns men, but he teaches them. And that's what we're supposed to do. You remember what he, he told Timothy? He says, he says, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Beloved, you're supposed to know the truth of God so you can share it. And as Peter says, we are to uh, be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account of the hope that is in us. So beloved, are you ready to give an account? Are you ready to warn? Are you ready to teach? That is part of your function as a believer. So Paul warns and teaches those around him. So how does the Christian come to maturity? He says he's gonna, he wants to, to present the man a complete in Christ. That just simply means mature in Christ. How is a man made mature in Christ? From the study of God's Word and what? What? The body of Christ. Speak to me. Doing the Word. That's how you mature. Doing the Word. This is not academic. This is not academic. This is not theoretical. God expects you to do the Word. And if you don't do the Word, don't call yourself a Christian. Call yourself something else. But you're not a Christian if you're not doing the Word. I'm not saying we do it perfectly. That's not what I'm saying. But God calls His people to do the Word. Look at verse 29. Paul says, I labor at this. If you look at the original language, he's laboring, he's striving, he's struggling, he's toiling. This is who he is. Beloved, are you giving that much energy uh, into your Christianity, it, is that how you're using your gift in the body of Christ? This is Paul's just a model for us here. We're supposed to be living like this. We're supposed to be serving the brethren like this. Man, you know, Christianity's just become a, a, a it's become a, 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 what am I trying to say, Bill? <laughs> it's become a spec, it's become a spectator sport. In many places. And that's not biblical Christianity. Thanks, Bill. It's not biblical Christianity. Okay, I'm done. Uh, let me just ask you a few questions. Just some things we can take away from this text for you to take away. Maybe think about, are you a good steward? Let me ask you. If you call yourself a Christian tonight, 
Are you a good steward of all that God has given you? Are you doing spiritual business with the gifts and the talents and the skills and the money and the time that God has given you? Are you investing and employing those gifts and talents and money into the kingdom of God? Are you fulfilling your ministry for the benefit of the brethren? Are you loving and serving the body of Christ? Are you incarnating this hope of glory in a conspicuous way? Is your family and friends and colleagues and neighbors seeing Christ in you? The reality of that. Are you warning and teaching those in your orbit about the realities of God? Are you loving people enough to warn them? Are you a student of the Word? Are you learning to rightly divide it that you might share it and give an account of the hope that is within you? Beloved, these are minimal, this, these are minimal Christian obligations. <laughs> I'm not calling you to anything super duper. I'm calling you to what it means to be a Christian. These are just, these are just foundational issues. These are foundational issues. Are you laboring? Are you striving? Are you toiling? Are you struggling? The prosecution of your gift in the church in loving and serving the body. Carlos, Halu, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they are paupers. They are paupers compared to the born again believer. We really understand what it means to be rich toward God. We really understand what God means when He talks about unfailing treasure in heaven. And we understand what it means to build our life around the Bema Seed. If you don't know what the Bema Seed is, come talk to me. Hey, you can go out on the podcast site and download uh, my first and second sermon on heaven and it talks a lot about it. But if you have questions, come talk with me. I'd be glad to talk with you about that. You know, Paul's main concern in life was not to please men or even himself. It was to please God. He was looking for that well done in Matthew chapter 25, 21. That's what he lived for. That well done from Jesus. I got Debbie, I'm going to throw you a curve. I was going to close with Matthew 25. Uh, but you go study that for yourself. You go study Matthew 25 for yourself uh, about the parable of the talents. Okay? You go study that for yourself. You find out what your stewardship is supposed to be before the Lord. But I thought I'd close with 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them. Here it is. Here's what you're supposed to do, uh, prosperous Western person. This is what you're supposed to do. You know, if you make over $37,000 a year, you're richer than 87% of the world. I know our perspective gets skewed, but beloved, we are very wealthy in worldly sense. But listen to what God's Word says. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. God-sized life. Living your stewardship for the glory of Jesus. Unfailing treasures in heaven. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for this. Uh, thank you for this challenge. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you that he models this for us so well. Father, forgive us that we often have such a low view of what it means to be called a Christian. Forgive us, Father, that it's become such a superficial, lethargic, apathetic kind of thing. Forgive us, Father, that we've allowed it to become little more than church attendance. Forgive us, Father, for we know that's not pleasing to You. You've left us on the planet to do a thing. You've gifted us to do a thing. You've left us here to do a thing. Lord, I pray that You would burden each one of our hearts that we would be busy doing what You've left us here to do, that we would be good stewards, that we would take it serious, that we'd be pointing at the Bema seat, that we'd be living for that day that we stand before Jesus and we live to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, that's, that's that's the passion we want in our hearts. Help us, great God. Light us up, Father. Encourage us, embolden us. Father, help us not to be lethargic. Help us not to be lukewarm. We know how you feel about that. Father, we want to be wholehearters. We don't want to be lukewarmers. Help us, great God. Help us, we pray. Fill us up, Holy Spirit. Fill us up. Fill us up. And use us up for the glory of Jesus. Amen.